0: All right, well, good morning, everyone. It's good to see. You. If you have your Bibles, your phones, your tablets, whatever you read your Bible on, we're in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, we're going to be in here for a little while. We're pretty much going to focus on just a few verses in chapter 10. And it's a new series, and I, I'm, I'm hoping that you'll give me the rest of the morning to explain the title of it, the title of it, When God Begs. And I know when you hear that phrase, like, well, God doesn't have to beg. Guys, w- when we start to understand what it is that actually the Scriptures teach, not just something that I came up with to just kind of get people to... Get interested in something, but when you start seeing why it is that God begs, the motivation behind why it is that God begs, I think it all—it like, actually will help many of us in how it is that we approach God. And so, just hang in there with me as we get into it. in, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, we're mostly looking at verse 12 today, but we'll kind of go through 12 and 13. Uh, if you're new, welcome. My name is Brian. I'm so glad that you're here. would love to meet you afterwards. If you want to come up and introduce yourself, if not, and I recognize that you're new, I'll just chase you down. So either way, we're going to meet each other just because I'm really glad to have you here. I know we just finished praying, and like, uh, like it was stated so far this morning, we want to be a praying community. Um, that is our foundation is prayer um, because we want to pray, and then as we pray that God will reveal his scriptures to us. And so, But we really do believe in the power of prayer. I know that maybe for some of you, uh, you've experienced something in the last year or two, or maybe even longer, where maybe prayers become a little bit less of what you do because you tried it, and it didn't work, and it didn't change anything, and I want to encourage you that when we pray, we pray, your kingdom come, your will be done, and we may not understand God's ways all of the time. In fact, I would say we probably won't understand his ways most of the time. But we can trust him based upon who he is, based upon what he's revealed to us in his word. We can trust him in the midst of all of it. And so just like parents, when we tell our little ones and they start freaking out about things that we just know are not that big of a deal, and we tell them, hey, trust me, trust me, trust me, and we get offended when they don't, right? It's like, I know what I'm talking about. You're going to be okay. We get it as parents. That they can trust us. We need to be reminded that we can trust our Father in heaven as well. So, hey, let's jump back in. Let's pray. We're going to dig into this for the morning. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we give you thanks for another morning together to come and to celebrate you, to worship you as a community. And God, I pray that you would speak. That you would re, that you would bring freedom for so many today that maybe they approach you in a way that just keeps them hindered. There's no freedom or liberty in it for those especially, God, that kind of approach you with this, with this idea or attitude that you're a lot like they are and they get impatient with people and therefore God must get impatient with me very quickly. God, I pray that our, our idea of you is completely shattered and brought back into truth of what your scriptures teach that we could approach you appropriately and experience the intimacy that you desire with us. God, for those who are here that don't have a relationship with you or watching online now or later or listening, Father, I pray that you would draw them to Jesus. And Holy Spirit, I pray you would convict of sin that they might turn their lives to Christ, to the lordship of Jesus, and receive your gift of salvation as they commit to following you. We pray for insight. We pray for an ability to hear and then grace in order to live it out. And so God, I pray you take a feeble attempt at making much of you and do a great, great work We trust you in the process. We pray this in Jesus' name and everyone who agrees says, amen. Uh, For those who have been around the Christian world for a while, uh, there's an old school pastor and I was thinking about this morning, uh, it it felt weird to say he's from the mid-1900s. And I went, oh my gosh, that's that's not that long ago, but doesn't that make you feel a little ancient, doesn't it? But he's uh, A.W. Tozer, if anyone likes to read things, he's one of the guys that I go to a lot. Because I think he was speaking things to the church and to Christians for us now long ago. And in a book that he he titled, Knowledge of the Holy, he makes this statement. And I I feel like you've been around for a while and you read this stuff. You've read this statement before. But I've never read the one after that. So give me a little bit of time. It's a little bit long. But the first part is the part that's well known. He says this. What comes into our minds when you think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base. As the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. Then he continues to say this. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at any given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend, by a secret law of the soul, to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God, just as her most significant message is what she says about him, or leaves unsaid, for her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. And if I could summarize it in one statement, this was what I wrote in my notes, how we see God is how we approach God. How we see God is how we approach God. And so we start this series, uh, this series that's going to last for a few weeks, like I said, in just pretty much a few verses here in Deuteronomy chapter 10. And if you don't know Deuteronomy, maybe you weren't brought up in the church and don't really know what that book's about. It's pretty much this. It's, it's, uh, it's Moses being grandpa, telling all the young ones, get ready. So if Moses isn't, doesn't get to go into the promised land, because rem- remember in Exodus when he sent uh, spies into the land, the promised land, that God says, I'm going to give this to you. Out of the 12, two came back saying, we got this because God promised it. And 10 said, no, we can't. And then they got the whole community to believe that they couldn't, couldn't do it. And God said this, okay, because you did not believe me, then everyone, I think it was 20 years and older, you will not see the promise, Lynn. Those of you 20 years and younger will. And so all the older ones have passed off. Moses is still there. Joshua and Caleb are going to get to go. And so they're, they're kind of the oldies of the crew. And all the young ones are getting ready to cross into the promised land. And here's Moses, the book of Deuteronomy, saying, if I could give you my last speech, this is what I would tell you. My last bit of advice, make sure that you get this. In fact, he kind of summarizes everything when you get to Deuteronomy chapter 30. It should be up on the screen, verse 19 and 20. He says, I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I've set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life, Now stop there for just a second. Can you hear his heart in this? He's like, I've placed it before you. You can make the decision. You can make the choice. But oh how I beg that you'll choose life. You've heard what God will do if you would follow and obey. You heard how he will deliver the promised land into your hands. All of the enemies, he'll deliver them all into your hands. You will have something that you didn't have to work for. Vineyards that were planted, you didn't have to do the work. Houses that were built, you didn't have to do the work. God is going to give you all these things. He's going to be your God. He wants to bless you. So obey what he says. And so I'm placing before you life and death, blessing and curse. Oh, I beg, please choose life. Do you hear that? Because I guarantee it wasn't this, so choose life, whatever. Because at 120 years old, not getting to go into the promised land, can you hear his heart? How I wish I could go, but I can't. Would you please choose life? He goes on and explains that you, are, that you and your offspring may live loving the Lord your God. I love how he connects how to live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice and holding fast to him, for he is your life. Followers of Jesus, Jesus is not a hobby that we add into our lives. He's, a part, he's not a part of our lives. He's our life. That without him, there is no life. He is the reason that we live. His purposes should be our purposes. Every single thing that we're about should be about him. And this isn't a guilt thing, this is an invitation into what it is that God has actually invited us into, where he is our life, and he's our length of days, that you may dwell in the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give them. And so we hear Moses' heart, so we jump back to chapter 10, verse 12, and 13, and listen to what Moses says. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you but to fear the Lord your God? to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I'm commanding you today for for your good. Remember, that one statement, how we see God is how we approach God. And notice the things that God requires. He says, to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord with all your heart and with all your soul, to keep the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. And we'll get into these over the next few weeks. We'll break each one of those down to see what it is that actually Scripture teaches about those things. And we also see how God is described. If you continue on into verse 14, listen to how God's described. God's describing, Behold, the Lord your God belong heaven and the heavens of heavens, the earth with all that is in it, So just stop there for just a second. So when we go outside, and so maybe we go outside, I don't know if you noticed, there's something called blue skies. We haven't seen those for a while. This is what Seattle feels like every year. But we go outside, we see blue skies, and there's this sun shining. We go, okay, that belongs to to God. And then it gets dark, and we see our four stars that we get every night, and then we see the moon, and then we see the airplanes passing by going, that's a shooting star there. Praise the Lord, that belongs to you. But guys, if we're in a place where we actually see thousands upon thousands or millions of stars, just up in the sky Moses is trying to remind us all of that belongs to him so those are the heavens and it's not even counting the hundreds of billions of galaxies with all of them having hundreds of billions of stars in all of them and all the nebula and the black holes and the planets, all of those belong to God and the Bible says that the heavens declare the glories of God so it's not just those heavens, but he says the heaven of heavens. And friends, I'm, this is my conviction. Not only does God own the heavens that we can see or the ones that we think that we can see in this ever-expanding universe, he also owns his throne room. He sits on the throne The mirrors, the hundreds of millions of angels who are surrounding him in worship and all the saints who have passed on before us in praise and worship. He goes, all of this is mine. And not only big universe, he goes, hey, and the earth, everything that's on it and in it is mine. Every mountain, every grass plain, the oceans and everything in the oceans And we think, oh, well, just the things like whales and dolphins, yes, but even the plankton. That on the earth, every blade of grass, every tree, every pine needle, every particle of dust, every atom, every neutron, proton, every cell in every single human body, every human being, every animal belongs to him. And then look at the invitation Because if anything, shouldn't that cause us? We still go, okay, so that's what God's like? He owns everything. He's that big and massive. I should just bow before him in terror. Like, I don't know what to do with him. Yet, the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers. Wow. So the one who owns everything, he set his heart on you. His heart of love is set on you, It's on your fathers, and chose their offspring after them. Guys, isn't that amazing? He's like, okay, the ancestors, yes, in love, he set his heart on them. But then he chose all of his offspring. So he, Moses is reminding him, he chose you. Before you're going and catch it, you are the chosen people of God. This, is, this massive God who owns everything, is in charge of everything, has set his heart of love on you and has chosen you. Guys, we didn't pick. For those of you who are followers of Jesus, we did not find him. We did not pick him of our own accord. We did not choose him first. The Bible says that no one seeks after God. No, not one. No one is good. But no one seeks for him. The only way that it happens is that the Father draws us to the Son. He woos us to the Son, that the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin and faith that is necessary. First, salvation is given to us by God. He gives everything. He provides everything. Do you see how our salvation is from grace to grace? It's always been about him. He set his heart and love on your fathers and chose your offspring after them. You above all peoples as you are this day. So we look at what does the Lord require of you and, well, who is this God? But let's go back to that verse in, uh, verse 12. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? Friends, that Hebrew word for require is the word sha'al. And when you read it, there, are, there is an aspect where that word actually means to require or demand. Out of the 173 times that word is used in the Old Testament, Seven times it's translated as, as to require, four times it's, it's translated as demand, but 94 times it's translated as ask. Now, this isn't, the, this isn't the whole list of the 173 times, but listen to this. 94 times it's the word ask, inquire 22 times, desire nine times, and beg two times. Because when I read, hey, what does the Lord require of you? Don't you sit there and go, okay, get it done, it's a duty. It's almost like God's just saying, just do this because I said so. Okay. Parents, how often have you fallen into that? As the, as the kids keep asking, so why, should, why, why, what, why do you want me to do this? Why, why should I do it? Because I said so. And you, you told, and you told yourself, I will never say that. Until you actually needed to say, I just said so. Little four-year-old, shut your mouth and just do it. Because I said so. I know you're gonna be Okay. Stop freaking out that there's no more graham crackers. There will be tomorrow. (laughs) Trust me. Because I said so. Doesn't that what it sounds like? This is what the Lord requires of you. Just do it. It's almost like shut your mouth and just do what you're told. Friends, I don't know about you, but when I read the scriptures, there are times where God says, yes, just do what I tell you. But there's also this God who says, do what I tell you, and here's why. Why? He may not always explain the why, but his reasons are always trustworthy. But at the heart of God is the heart of a father who loves us. And so when I read this, and I read this in a a different translation called the Christian Standard Bible, and I wonder if it means something different to you. Not means. I wonder if it brings about the truth that I believe that this verse is actually supposed to be showing us. So instead of me saying, this is what the Lord requires of you, listen to this. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you except... This is what the Lord begs of you. Do you hear the difference? Do you hear the heart of a father just going, okay, as you get ready to go in, this is what God is saying. This is what he begs of you. It's not just get it done because he says so. It's just like, this is what the Father, this is what the Lord, Yahweh, the self-existent covenant-keeping God, this is what he's saying. Would you, I beg you, would you please fear me and love me and keep my ways? Doesn't the reality of of that one word change everything? And friends, this is not an attempt to make God soft. Guys, there's enough scripture in, in, there's enough scripture and truth revealed in the scriptures. God is not soft. We think in our heads, beg means soft. Guys, beg can also mean passion. Beg can mean heartbrokenness if you don't, because here's the thing: God will punish sin. And so if God is sitting there going, I know what has to happen. For those that do not repent, so I'm begging you. I'm begging, I'm asking you. But would God actually beg? Is this the only place? When we turn to Luke chapter 22, starting in verse 31, this is where uh, Jesus is speaking to Peter. And he simply says this, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And you may say, and you may look at that passage and go, it doesn't even say anything about begging or asking. But here's the thing. In verse 32, but I have prayed. Guys, that word pray is not the same word as pray like in Ephesians chapter 6 where it talks about prayer, supplication. It's actually the Greek word deome. And it means to plead, to ask, to beg, so think about it, he's sitting there going, hey, Satan demanded you, which is just really weird that Satan would actually try to demand anything from God. I don't understand that. It's almost like, who do you think you're talking to? But he's, he's demanded you, but I, am, I have begged for you. I've pleaded that your faith will not fail. And friends, that intercessory ministry of Jesus did not stop with Simon. Paul brings it up in Romans chapter 8, verse 34. He said, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us? When you look up that word interceding in the Greek, it means to plead, to appeal for, to petition, to intercede, to intervene. So you have God in Deuteronomy going, oh, I beg you, I beg you that you would. You have Jesus, fully God, fully man, looking at Simon going, I have pleaded, I have begged on your behalf that your faith would not fail you. You have his intercessory ministry that's continuing on our behalf where he is begging and pleading on our behalf. A book that I finished a few weeks ago it's called uh, Gentle and Lowly by Dane Ortberg. And it's just a quick, a quick description of what intercession is. He said, Intercession is the constant hitting refresh of our justification in the court of heaven. To be justified is something that God does, it's one time. When you surrender your life to Christ, you are justified. You do not become justified again, it's one time. So, what if you sin? Well, you confess it, but you don't become justified again. When I surrendered my life to Christ, I was declared by God justified, not guilty. Not innocent, because I'm guilty of it, but he's not gonna hold it against me. That's a legal term, and even in that day, you wouldn't go back and justify again for the same thing. But in our justified state, understand this, and friends, we gotta be honest with this. Our bodies, every thought, every thought, Every motivation, every every feeling is tainted by sin and depravity. Every single thing in us is impacted by sin. You ever wonder why Scripture says, I need you to take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. Just because you have a relationship with Jesus does not mean that every thought that you have is now in line with Christ. If that were true, man, it'd be awesome. But do you, ever, do you ever feel like this? Gosh, the things I want to do for God, I find myself not doing those things. And the things I don't want to do, I'm doing those things. Well, welcome, because Paul said the same thing in Romans 7. That We're supposed to take every thought captive. Guys, we're supposed to capture every feeling, every emotion. Guys, we have a culture that's actually believed in this idea. What you feel is who you are. And the scriptures come and say, your feelings have been tainted and twisted and jacked up by sin. Your thoughts have been twisted by sin. Every desire has been twisted by sin. But we now have the Holy Spirit in us, followers of Christ, that we do not have to. We don't have to obey sin. We have the freedom to not sin. But we take every thought, every motivation, every feeling captive, and we place it before the scriptures of Christ and submit our lives to God Instead of being defined by them, we submit them to the lordship of Jesus. It's this constant refresh. That's what Jesus is doing. He's interceding for us. He's refreshing things. And at no point does he become impatient with it. In Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Guys, he lives to make intercession for us to the uttermost. In that same book, listen to this. Oh, it's mind blowing. He describes to the uttermost means God's forgiving, redeeming, restoring touch reaches down into the darkest crevices of our souls. Those places we are most ashamed, most defeated. More than this, those crevices of sin are themselves the places where Christ loves us the most. Did you catch that? In those secret places. Those crevices that you think are hidden that you feel like you're too ashamed to actually make known to God. He's like, that's where you're loved the most. His heart willingly goes there. His heart is most strongly drawn there. He knows us to the uttermost. He saves us to the uttermost because his heart is drawn out to us to the uttermost. Watch it. We cannot sin our way out of his tender care because he loves us to the uttermost. That when you gave your life to Christ, he gave himself fully to you. And the Father does not disown his own. You're his. He loves you to the uttermost. He intercedes for you constantly. He always lives to intercede for you. And all this, because we're his, you get to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. And following says this, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. All of this, and that word this is referring back to the old is gone. The new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Guys, you ever notice when you're the one that offends the person, you're supposed to go to them and make it right? True. We tell our kids that, and I feel like I'm supposed to do that. If I do something wrong, go make it Right? But isn't it amazing that God has never done anything wrong and yet He's the one who came to make it right? Who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, and He explains the ministry, of, or He explains reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses or their sins against them, and entr- now it's a, entrusting to us the message. Of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors, we're spokespeople for Christ. Watch, watch. God making his appeal through us. When I looked up that word appeal, guess what it means? To ask for earnestly, to beg, to plead. There's also an aspect of inviting, encouraging, to console, to urge, to call together. But notice that it's God making his beggary, his invitation through us. And then watch Paul. So because God is making his appeal, because God is imploring through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ be reconciled to God. So when I looked up that word implore, guess which word it is? Daomey. It's the same Greek word that describes Jesus when he prayed, when he daomey for Peter, when he begged on his behalf. He prayed, I begged that your faith would not fail you. And here we are as followers of Jesus. Think about it. Are we at this point in this mission that we've been given? We have this message of reconciliation where people can be reconciled to God, do we deome people? Do we beg and plead and uh, implore that they would come to Christ on behalf of God? Because that's his heart. His heart is to beg them. Do you see that it's not just one verse in one part of the Bible and one word, but it's the heart of God we're saying, would you just beg? Would you beg them on my behalf? You're my ambassadors. I've anointed appointed. I've empowered you to go. Beg them. Implore them to come. So my question is, have we learned to accept our call? As ambassadors for Christ to beg and implore and plead with others on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God, have we accepted the message and the mission? Like, does it hit our hearts? Does it hit our souls? Guys, you ever walk just around, like, next time you hit the grocery store, wherever you're walking around, you see a group of people, does it ever enter in your mind, do they know the Lord? Like, do they have a relationship with Jesus? He said, well, I don't know them. Guys, aren't you so thankful for those of you who know Christ? Aren't you thankful that that person who did not know you got to know you so they could lead you into what a relationship with Jesus looks like? Guys, the mission is not based on whether we know them. The the mission is based on the fact that we know God. And we look at God's heart. And whatever breaks God's heart is what should break our hearts. Friends, have we... Accepted the mission, the invitation, the role and responsibilities as ambassadors for Christ to implore people on behalf of Christ to be reconciled to God. Has it hit us? If we're honest, I wonder if maybe someone says, well, it kind of depends on the person. I mean, can't you think of that person just sitting there going, I don't know if I want to see them in heaven. If you're really honest... I mean, aren't there some people who oppress people in a pretty horrific way and you sit there and go, I don't want to see them go to I don't want to see them in heaven. And if you're on, let's be on, you don't have to say it out loud, but come on. You're like, no, I would never, guys, think about it. In the New Testament, the guy that we read a lot, who read, who wrote half of it, no one in that day would have imagined ever seeing Paul come to Christ. Why? Because he was too busy persecuting and oppressing and applauding at the Christ, at the at the murdering of Christians. And two thousand years later, we are still reading his writings that were inspired by, inspired by the Holy Spirit, so the Holy Spirit, so we could what understand the deeper revelations of God and His grace, because God ravaged him by His grace, and he came to Christ. Friends, if we ever find ourselves looking at a group of people and automatically thinking in our minds they don't deserve the Lord. Neither do we. Here's what we deserve hell and separation from God. That's it. I deserve nothing else. But by the grace of God. Always comes back to the grace of God. Those so so those of you who vote red, don't be hating on the blues. And those of you who vote blue, don't be hating on the reds. Like, Brian, Brian, where do you stand? I'm a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And followers of Jesus, that's where we should start. And we can sit and go, I go, well, I, I know people who aren't, they're not living the biblical standard of sexuality. And your point is what? If they do not have a relationship with Christ... You treat them as one who does not know Jesus, and you what? You implore them that they would come to Christ. That when they come to Christ, then they will repent of sin and give their lives over and follow and obey Jesus. There's this push and passion now, this ideology that what you feel is what you are, how you feel, so everyone can kind of pick a gender. What do we say about that? Anyone is welcome in our worship gatherings. But I will, I will, and we will continue to preach the truth of the scriptures that it is a lie. We will hold to the convictions that God is the one who created male and female, He assigns it. But we will show compassion and help for those who are buying into this lie that the culture has thrown out and implore them be reconciled to God. Find your identity in Jesus. We will not stand in judgment. There is one judge and we are not it. We are the church left after Jesus went into the skies to continue the work where he sought after and went after the lost to bring them into fellowship with God. Church, that's our job. That's our mission. And we have the message of reconciliation. God forgive us for our arrogance. God forgive us but also, God, forgive us how we've let some things slide in the name of grace and love, and it has nothing to do with that. It's not even according to righteousness and truth. God, forgive us. May we hold to the truths of your scriptures so that people would actually find and experience the forgiveness that comes with God and find their identity in what Jesus says about them. As the worship team comes back up, I got to land the plane. You may sit there and go, Well, oh, but Brian, I know some really rough people, bad people. Look, oh, hold on. Guys, it's not, we, let's not, let's not limit God. Let's not create God in our own image. That's called idolatry. From the Old Testament, a lot of people think that's when God's all mad. That's the mad part. That's like his journal of being ticked. Then Jesus shows up, the first happy hippie, and he's all happy. Jesus is the one in Revelation that comes and starts to destroy. So let's watch the happy, the happy hippie idea that we have of him. It's not like the father's the mean one and Jesus is the happy one. The Holy Spirit's just running around in circles because we don't know what he's doing. Father said, Holy Spirit, see sin the exact same way. Deal with sin the exact same way. But watch his heart. In Ezekiel 33, if you've never read Ezekiel, God is ticked in this book. But watch this. Now as for you, son of man, say to the house of Israel, you have said this. Our transgressions and our sins are heavy on us and we are wasting away because of them. How then can we survive? Tell them, as I live, this is the declaration of the Lord God. I, watch it, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Did you see it? And if we do, we do not have the heart of God. When we rejoice in the death of the wicked, God's like, I don't rejoice in the death of the wicked. What's he prefer but rather that the wicked person should turn from his way and live. Repent, repent of your evil ways. Why will you die, house of Israel? May we not justify our hatred that we clothe in the name of religion. But may we ask for forgiveness. May we confess and repent from that attitude in order that we live according to Jesus because we call ourselves citizens of heaven. So when we come back to Deuteronomy 10, 12, and now Israel, what does the Lord your God ask, beg, implore of you? Friends, how we see God is how we approach God. How we see God is how we approach God, but also how we see God is how we will approach others. Friends, if we can get it, that God's heart aches for those that don't know him. It hurts, he begs and plores and, and then he calls us his people and he begs us to walk in obedience. Not because he's weak or needs anything, but because he loves us. When we start to get to that, then the commandments of God become less, quote unquote, just requirements. And they become, in our minds, we go, God's just protecting us. God's guiding and leading us because he knows how much, how far away we can go. So guys, we hold on to this. Like we listen. God, what is it that you want? He might even be calling you right now. Just, I'm just kidding. <laughs> He's just calling you on the phone. He's saying, I beg you. <laughs> I got you, Ed. Okay, so <laughs> He's just, but guys, think, if we could get it, if God's saying, I beg you, be reconciled to me. Church, we should be saying the same thing. We see people, I beg you, be reconciled to God. I beg you. Because that is the heart of the Father. Let's pray. God, as we sing this last song to you, God, thank you that through a Bible reading plan, you opened my mind to a verse that I've seen so many times. Oh, but God, you opened my heart to your heart. Thank you that you... Ask of us. And the things first fear you, love you, walk in your ways, obey you, serve you with everything we have. It's so relational. God, please forgive us. Please convict us. And thank you for the grace required to repent. And God, I pray, oh, God, don't let us miss your heart. Break our hearts for what breaks yours, God. Fill us with the same passion that you have. So God, even in this last song, may we worship you in a manner that's worthy of you. Thank you. Thank you for your heart. Thank you for who you are. God, we pray this in Jesus' name and everyone who agrees says, amen. Love you more than you.